Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. We're going to be in 17, 18, and 21. We're going to look at three different scenes uh, throughout the storyline here, continuing with Abraham this morning. Uh, But thank you for being here. We're continuing our series called A Family for the World. And so we are uh, looking at Genesis 12 through 50. So last fall, uh, back in 2020, we covered Genesis 1 through 11. And so now we're looking at Genesis 12 through 50, and we're looking at the storyline of Abraham and how God has promised to build this great family that will be a blessing for the world. And so this family is going to grow over time and turn into nations And it's going to be larger than Abraham can even comprehend. So that's what we're looking at, and we're going to be in Genesis 17 today. But before we dig in today, uh, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, again, we're so thankful that we get to be here this morning, that we get to worship You. And Lord, I pray that You would bless us truly as we uh, do continue to hear from you, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and change us and transform us. Lord, show us your grace. Show us your heart today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this Saturday night, uh, Christy and I are going on a date to see our favorite comedian. He's coming into town. He's going to be at the Florida Theater. His name is Nate Bargatze. And uh, I don't know if you know him, of him at all, but he is awesome. He's so funny. Um, he's, he's hilarious. He's clean, which I love. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Uh, so he's, he's just a good, funny comedian. And I'm fully expecting uh, to laugh until my side hurts. Like, that's, that's what I want, right? I mean, that's what I'm paying for to go see this guy. I want, I want him to make me laugh. There should be lots of laughter when you go see a comedian, But you know, laughter is kind of like fire. Laughter is kind of like fire because in the right context, it's great and it does a lot of good. We have that saying, laughter is the best medicine, right? But in the wrong context, it can be destructive or at least disrespectful. Like I remember as a kid, there were moments in class at school where I was laughing, and it really wasn't a laughable moment, and so I got in trouble. I'm sure some of you can relate. Well, today, as we pick up back with the story of Abraham, believe it or not, we're going to see a lot of laughter in these three chapters of Genesis 17, 18, and 21. We're going to see a lot of laughing, mostly in the wrong context, but at the end, in the proper context. So let's pick up in Genesis 17. I want us to go from there and look at three different scenes as this story continues to unfold, all right? So we're going to walk through this story, and then we're going to talk about it at the end. So here's scene one, Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. 
So if you stop right there, it's interesting to note that the name Sarah means princess. It means princess. And it's indicating her part. God is changing her name to indicate her role in this royal kingdom that he will one day establish. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. What's so funny about that? Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So God is telling Abraham that his wife, who is barren, by the way, she's not able to have children. She, they have had no kids. She's now 90 years old. She's been unable to have children. God is saying, yeah, your 90-year-old wife's going to have a baby. And nations are going to descend from her. And what was Abraham's response? He laughed. He laughs. He laughs at what God is saying. He laughs at the words of God. Granted, yes, they seem impossible, but he's laughing as if God doesn't get it. Verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, who's Ishmael? Now, we, we, we touched on this before. Ishmael, Abraham does have a son, but it's not by Sarah. Abraham's son was by a servant girl named Hagar. So Abraham thinks he has a better plan. He and Sarah have already greatly disobeyed the Lord in trying to take matters into their own hands. And so now Abraham's basically, basically telling God, oh, hey, God, I already have a son. I already have a son. Remember, can't he just be the promised offspring? Abraham's pitching this better plan in his mind to God. Verse 19, God said, no, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You see, it's as, it's as if God is saying, no, no, Abraham, we're not going to do this the way that you think it should be done. No, this plan is going to be accomplished in my way and in my timing. And I think just so, Abraham and Sarah would never, ever forget this moment where God said no we're going to do this my way, and that's the way things will always be done. I think just so that they would remember forever, God tells Abraham to name his son Isaac. And you know what the name Isaac means? It means he laughs. It means he laughs. So don't, say, don't tell me God doesn't have a good sense of humor, right? He laughs. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. All right, that's, that's scene one. Now, let's move on to scene two. Genesis 18, we're going to start in verses one and two. We're going to skip around a little bit today. I just skipped verse 20 there. We're going to skip down to verse nine in just a second. Genesis 18, verses one and two. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, this is just a little bit later. Abraham is kind of sitting out by his tent, okay? And God is going to appear again. It says the Lord appeared. So who are these three men? Well, most all commentators agree that these three men are two angels. And guess what? The Lord himself. The Lord himself is appearing in bodily form to Abraham. So Abraham shows hospitality and he provides a meal for them in the next few verses. And then skip down to verse 9. Here's what happens in the conversation. So these men, these three men, the Lord and two angels who have appeared to Abraham. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Verse 12, so what did Sarah do? So Sarah laughed. She laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So here's that laughing response again. Just like her husband, Sarah laughs at the words of God. But then the Lord turns and asks this question. And this next question in verse 14 is the question that they must really come to terms with here. This is the crux of the matter. This is what they really need to be able to answer. The Lord says and asks, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for me, Abraham? Are you telling me that, that this is beyond my capability? God is asking them this rhetorical question. Because you, you see, here's the thing. I mean, we are talking about the God who created the universe. We are talking about the God who spoke planets into existence out of nothing. But Abraham and Sarah, as crazy as it is, as crazy as it sounds, they are laughing when he says that he will now speak existence where there was none. That he will speak life where there was death. But God continues to speak to Abraham. If you continue on in verse 14, he asks this rhetorical question and he continues on. He says at the appointed time, he's reemphasizing this. He's telling them it's going to happen. I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So, let's fast forward now to chapter 21. So you can look on the screens or you can flip over to the third and final scene of this birth story. Guess what? This is about one year later, just as God had said. Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah 
as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. As God had said, as God had promised, at the time God said it would be done, verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. (laughs) He laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I mean, that is crazy, right? That's wild. I mean, Abraham should have had his name on the Today Show, right? Celebrating his hundredth birthday. And he's also celebrating his first child being born. Verse six, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? I can just imagine imagine Sarah, after giving birth to Isaac, holding him for the first time and saying these words and just kind of laughing to herself. And whoever else was in the tent when she gave birth, just kind of having a joyful laughing moment when they realized that how foolish of us to think that the words of the Lord would not come true. And how funny is this situation in general? Here we are, parents for the first time, 100 years old, 90 years old. But God did it. And there you have it. 25 years later, by the way, after God first promised Abraham he would give him an offspring. 25 years, it comes true. What can we learn, though, from this amazing story? What can we learn? See, I think there's really two competing themes, if you will. I think there's two competing themes running through this narrative that I want us to look at, and I think they have an unbelievable amount of things to do with our lives today. The first theme you see, though, in this story is the danger of our doubt. The danger that's in our doubt when we doubt the words of God. Now, I want to be clear. Abraham is heralded as a great man of faith in the New Testament, and rightfully so, absolutely. Overall, generally speaking, he was a great man of faith, and you're going to see that next week as we look at the next great story. Uh, We'll see his great faith in that next, next week in the sermon next week. But, yes, he was a great man of faith, but he was still human just like us, which means that he naturally struggles with doubt, just like we do. We all struggle with doubt. You see, doubt is natural. Doubt is natural because we're not God, right? I mean, God knows, think about this, this is why we doubt. God knows everything. He sees the whole picture from beginning to end and everything in between, but we only see what's in front of us. We only see one chapter at a time, if you will. We only see one float in a parade coming through where God sees the beginning, he sees the end, he sees the whole thing. So in that great gap, 
between our knowledge and God's, which is is a huge gap. To fill in that gap of our knowledge and His, there is either room for trust to fill in that gap or doubt. Between Him knowing all things and us knowing just a little bit, we can either choose to trust in that gap or doubt. But often, probably more times than not, because of our sinful nature, because of our sinful hearts, because of our idolatry in our own lives, you know what we choose? We choose doubt. Often doubt wins that battle. We want to know everything, but we can't. And for some of us, it kind of drives us crazy, right? I mean, we go to great lengths in our world to try to have as much information as possible. We live in an information age. We think that knowledge is power. We think that the more we know, the better off we'll be. If we don't know something, we think that we're missing out, right? We have FOMO. We have fear of missing out. All of us have that to some degree. We think we need to know what's going on in someone else's life, right? And if we don't know everything that's going on in their lives, then we feel like we're missing out. Or we feel like we're not in tune. We feel like we don't, we're not able to trust the situation at hand. But what we really struggle with is the fact that we should be trusting a God who knows all things and holds this world and our lives in his hands. Yet, we have this sinful desire to know everything like God. I think Adam and Eve struggled with that too, didn't they? You see, Adam, or Abraham rather, Abraham and Sarah what are they doing? It probably is bugging them that they don't know what's going on. Even though God is telling them lots of details, they are both doubting the words of God. They can't see the full picture of what God is doing, even though he's cluing them in on so many things. They're pretty, they're pretty frustrated, right? After 25 years of this ongoing dialogue with God. But here's the thing. God does reveal himself to us. It's not like he's left us wandering in the dark with no room for trust. He reveals himself to us. He does give us and clue us in on what he's doing in so many ways. He does give us many details about himself. He does tell us how to live for him in this life. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He is present with us. Yes, there's this great gap in what we know and what he knows and how limited our knowledge is, but he chooses to speak to us through his word. He's given us his word so that we can fill in that gap with trust in what we don't know. But still, we doubt. And if we let that doubt linger, if we let it go unchecked, Here's what starts to happen. I want to give you three things that happens when you let that doubt go unchecked in your life, in your heart. First of all, number one, doubt causes you to stop listening to God and start listening to yourself. That's the first danger. You know why? Because you see that in this story. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always give myself good advice. And I talk to myself all the time, okay? Sometimes I wonder, you know, when you pull up at a red light, you look, at, you look over and you see somebody talking. There's so many options these days. Like, are they on Bluetooth? Are they praying? Are they just talking to themselves? Who knows these days, right? But I don't know about you, but I don't give myself great advice. But listen to this. In Genesis 17, verse 17, what did we see? When Abraham 
It says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And what did he do? He didn't complain first to God. He complained first to himself. Did you see that? He said to himself, the conversation, the dialogue was with God, which indicates a level of trust. But as soon as doubt takes control, Abraham turns his attention from the dialogue with God and makes it internal. As if God can't hear him, he mutters this under his breath. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? He's talking to himself. He's questioning the words of God internally. Sarah did the same thing. Look at this in Genesis 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Right? They're just asking these things to themselves. This is one of the first dangers in our doubt. We start questioning God's word as if he can't hear us. Our dialogue with God ceases and we, ha- we have this internal conversation as if our wisdom and our knowledge is going to be enough to fill in that great gap between what we know and what God knows. In my life, and I would probably bet in yours, there's a direct correlation between my level of trust in God in whatever situation I'm going through, and the amount of time I'm spending in dialogue with Him. In other words, let me say it this way. When I'm spending time with God in His Word and in prayer consistently, I feel like I can trust the Lord, and I do. But when those things start to slip in personal time with the Lord, in His Word, in prayer, you know what starts to creep into my heart and my mind? Doubt. And I would be willing to bet that the same thing is true for every person in this room because God designed us in a way to crave communion and fellowship with Him. And when we start neglecting that, right? When we start neglecting the Word of God and saturating it in our hearts and minds, when we start neglecting prayer and talking to Him, so listening to Him through the Word, talking to Him through prayer, when we neglect that intimate time with Him, of course, doubt is going to rule and reign over our minds. And here's what that leads to, the second danger in our doubt. Doubt makes us impatient. So not only does it turn the dialogue internally, we start talking to ourselves, trying to convince ourselves something may be true, but we also grow impatient. Look at verse 18 of chapter 17. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, Abraham's saying, I already have a son, God. Can't you just use him? I don't want to keep waiting around. Which is exactly, by the way, how Ishmael came into existence through the impatience of Abraham and Sarah. They tried to take matters into their own hands. You see, we don't believe God can do what needs to be done, and so we we offer an alternative quick fix. Well, hey, Lord, listen, I know you're working and all that good stuff, but why don't we just do things this way? Why don't I just do it this way? Why Why don't we just, why don't you let me take control? It's impatience. It's doubt that grows impatient. We suggest a better plan to God. 
We take matters into our own hands. And does that ever go well? I would bet no. But thirdly, the danger in our doubt. Doubt hinders us from approaching God in open transparency. I mean, we really do become dishonest in our doubt, or at least not forthcoming. Verse 15 of chapter 18, but Sarah denied that she laughed, right? She said, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. He said, no, you did. You did laugh. We heard you. You see, the God of all creation is standing outside the door of her home. Sarah is hiding behind Abraham because she's afraid to be honest with God. She's afraid to bring her doubts to God. She could have ran to the Lord and fell at his feet and worshipped him and thanked him for being so kind and gracious and caring to her over the years. But instead, she decided to pull back, not be transparent about how she really feels, to hide in the background and just laugh at the words of God. Doubt was ruling over her heart. You see, doubt causes us to respond to our guilt and the shame that we carry inside of us from past sins that we've committed. You know what doubt does? It causes us to deal with those things in all the wrong ways. It causes us to want to hide and seclude ourselves further from God instead of coming to Him in forthcomingness and, and being open and transparent about our doubts, about our sin. It causes us to feel more disconnected with God as if we can't be honest with Him. And so we seclude ourselves from God we hide behind someone else or something else and we dwell on our sin and how much of a mistake and a disaster we've made of ourselves instead of running to the God who forgives and confessing our sin and asking Him for forgiveness. You see, doubt is natural. We all struggle with this. It's okay that we have doubts but it's not okay to let them linger. It's not okay to let them go unchecked. There's great danger if we do. So what's the solution to our doubt? Well, ultimately, it's belief. Belief is the solution to doubt. Faith, belief, and trust in who God is and His capabilities. And that's the competing theme you see in this story. You see the danger in our doubt, but secondly, you also see the capability of our God. You see the capability of our God. Since the Garden of Eden, since the beginning of time, the narrative of Genesis is building with anticipation and expectancy for this promised offspring that God himself in Genesis 3.15 promised would come. This promised offspring of Adam would be born, would rise up, and would defeat evil once and for all. And then we get to Abraham in chapter 12. We're introduced to Abraham, and the hope of this offspring starts to look like it's going to become reality. But then 25 years go by, and one major problem is looming over this whole storyline. Sarah is unable to have children. 
Moses wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit many years after all this stuff happened. And I think Moses is making us aware from the very first mention of Abraham and on throughout this story, I think Moses is cluing us in and making it, he's emphasizing this fact. When he first introduces Abraham in this list of genealogies, it seems random to include this statement. But in Genesis 11.30, when we first see Abraham's name, Abram at the time, it said, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's a random fact to throw in this great story. But then you see him include this truth again and again. He continues to make this clear throughout the narrative. Why? He is showing us how impossible this whole thing seems. He's showing us how impossible it is that Abraham and Sarah could be the ones to produce this anticipated offspring that the whole narrative is anticipating and rolling up to. But with our God, all things are possible. Paul in Romans 4 is talking about Abraham and he says this about God. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, God told Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And this is what Paul says about God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, our God is not dependent on certain circumstances. Our God is not even dependent on the level of faith that we have. Our God doesn't have to wait for the stars to align so he can act, so he can do something. Our God is the giver and the sustainer of all life. He proactively creates life out of death. He creates something out of nothing. That's what he did at the creation of the universe in the beginning of time. And that is what he did in Sarah's barren womb. This was a true miracle. It really was. But that's what our God is capable of. All things are possible. He has the power to do whatever he wants in this material world. Yes, can he break the laws of nature and science? Absolutely he can because he created those laws. Only he has the authority to do that. But he also can do whatever he wants and has the power to do so in the spiritual realm as well. Because this would not be the last time God would create life out of death. This would not be the final time that he would create the possible out of the impossible. You see... There's something really neat here that you can't miss. There are bookends. There are bookends to this great story of promised offspring throughout the Bible. You see, it begins with a miraculous birth in Genesis 21. Isaac being born in a barren womb, a miracle. But this narrative and anticipation an expectancy of a promised offspring 
2,000 years later, comes about by another miraculous birth. There was another birth announcement by angels that seemed impossible. When an angel visited a young woman named Mary. You see, Jesus, when he was born to a virgin, he was the promised offspring that the Old Testament had been looking for through all those years, through all those lives, through all those genealogies. He was the one. He would be the son of Adam that would raise up and defeat death and evil once and for all. A miraculous birth on the front end, a miraculous birth at Christ's birth. What does this tell us? That from the beginning to the end, God is the only one who can do this. Look what he's capable of. He's the one running this. Only he can turn the impossible into the possible. But you know what? There's more miraculous births. There's many of them, actually. In John chapter 3, Jesus said to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, He said, You, you must be born again. He said, In order for anyone to be a part of the kingdom of God, we all must experience a miraculous birth, a rebirth. We must be born again. Because, you see, like Sarah's barrenness, our spiritual rebirth is not humanly possible. There's another birth that seemed impossible. And it was without the Lord's intervention. And that is your spiritual rebirth. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. Spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, in His ultimate grace, sent His Son to die for us in our place. And it's because of another miracle where life was created out of death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that by grace, through faith, and what He has done for you, not what you can do for yourself, not you trying to fill that ultimate gap between your knowledge and God's knowledge, you trying to impress God, you trying to prove yourself to Him, you trying to prove yourself to yourself. It's not through any of that, but only by grace through faith that our God creates new life in our dead souls. Do you see how our God is capable? Do you see that? I think some of you probably came here today with some serious doubts. I mean, who didn't? Who didn't walk in here today without some kind of doubt lingering in your heart, in your mind? We are all just humans. We're not God. And we struggle. And that's okay that we struggle. We're not meant to know everything He knows. We're not meant to be able to do what He can do. Maybe you're doubting God's forgiveness. Maybe there's something you've done. And the truth is, it eats at you. You may dream about it. You may have 
just lingering thoughts, intrusive thoughts in your mind during the day about it. There's something you've done. And the truth is, you are doubting that God is able to forgive you. And the question you need to ask yourself is the question that God himself asked Abraham and Sarah. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for God to forgive you of what you've done? Do you think what you've done is so bad that the Lord God who creates nothing, or creates something out of nothing, life out of death, that he cannot forgive your sins? That is pride. That is pride in your own heart, thinking that you are a greater judge than God himself. Maybe you're doubting his provision for what you really need in the situation that you're in right now. Maybe you are truly doubting that God has a path forward and all you see are roadblocks. Let me tell you something. I don't know what the situation is. I'm not some prophet. I am not. But I know this, that you can start trusting the Lord that he will carry you through whatever it is. That doesn't mean there's not going to be serious turmoil. That's not going to mean, that doesn't mean there's not going to be heartache. That doesn't mean there's not going to be pain. That doesn't mean there's not going to be problems relationally. But what it does mean is that our God has a plan and he works through the problems. Sometimes the best thing we need to do is not ask him to necessarily remove the problem, but remove our doubt. And so that he can walk us through the problem with all of its challenges. So that he shapes us and molds us in the fire into who we need to be. Maybe you're doubting that. Maybe you're doubting that he can really give you joy. You have had joy in your life before, but you don't have it now. And maybe you seriously doubt that God wants you to be happy, that he wants you to be joyful. Maybe you're doubting that he can give you the boldness or the courage you need to take a stand in whatever it is going on in your life. Maybe you're doubting that you can really share the gospel with someone. Let me tell you something. Whatever the doubt is in your heart today that you carried in this building, we need to ask that same question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that we cannot hand to him this morning? Is there anything that we cannot give him the weight of that he can't bear? The answer may it be always a resounding no. No, there is nothing too hard for our God. He is capable. When we do finally realize that, as the NIV study Bible puts it, our laughter of disbelief becomes laughter of joy. That's what happened, I think, when Sarah was holding her newborn son named, he laughs. In Genesis 21, verse 6, she said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. In other words, everybody who hears about this will joyfully laugh with me. But this is joyful laughter. You see that? This is laughter in the right context, in the proper way. There's joyful laughter all around as Sarah holds her newborn child, this new life, and they stand amazed at the God who creates life out of death. May that be our joy. May that be our joy this morning. That we belong to a God who creates Something out of the nothingness in our hearts who gives us joy where there is sadness. Who gives us eternal life where there was nothing but rotting death.
He is capable. Amen? Amen. He is capable. Cry out to Him today. Confess whatever sin, whatever doubt you brought in here this morning. Ask Him to help you trust Him in that great gap of what you know and what He knows. May trust be. May trust in Jesus Christ. Because you know what? He closed that gap. The gap that eternally separated us from God. Jesus Christ came to earth. And He died the death we should have died in our place for us. Is there anything that should give us more joy in this life than tasting that goodness of God. So would you ask him today to restore the joy of your salvation? And may we all just thank God for showing us his capabilities and his power. May we just cry out and thank him for his goodness and his love through Jesus Christ our salvation, the new birth we needed. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that in our deadness, in our inability, in our doubt, you are strong. Lord, in our weakness, your grace is strong. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who overcomes doubt and overcomes our fears. But Lord, may we be honest with you right now. May we confess our unbelief Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, as the Father in the book of Mark cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. So Lord, would you bring healing to us? Would you heal our souls? Would you restore the joy of our salvation? And Lord, for those who have yet to truly put their trust, Jesus in you and what you've done for them, maybe they're just still trusting themselves. Lord, would you open the deadness of their hearts and give them life today. Help them to turn to you in repentance and faith. Jesus, would you create life Lord, if there's someone here today that needs to be born again, would you bring that miraculous birth to their soul today? We thank you that you've given us this miraculous birth for those of us who have turned to you, Jesus. Would you fill us with everlasting joy, the joy of laughter, as we see your goodness and your graciousness through every circumstance of our life. 
Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. It's in your name we pray.